Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. I was once hunted by an octopus. I was standing knee-deep in the crystal-clear water of the little stony beach of San Fruttuoso on the Portofino Peninsula, when I noticed what I took to be a stone was, in fact, moving steadily towards me, and had arms, or legs, eight of them. I had time to count before it lunged at me. I stepped back. The octopus lunged again. I took another step. He followed, and so on. Finally, I was standing on dry land, and the octopus was still coming for me. He, or she, it's difficult to know with an octopus unless you're an expert, stopped half out of the water and fixed a beady eye on me. He was clearly waiting for me to make the next move, and when I didn't react, he moved back out to deep water, but not before I got a photo to prove it. I've often wondered why, of all the people swimming and paddling there that day, the octopus chose me. Did I give off some exotic Irish scent when my feet combined with salt water? Was he fed up with eating Italians? Was he a deranged octopus who lost a run of himself one day? And if so, are there a lot of them about, and should we be worried? And what was he doing in two feet of water, anyway? Wasn't he supposed to be lurking offshore? Finally, after years of scientific investigation, I am in a position to answer one question. The why-me mystery may be solved. The answer is whiteness. There is nothing quite so white as an Irishman on an Italian beach. Even after two or three days of constant exposure to sunlight, your average Irishman never gets beyond a state of iridescent pinkness that is frankly embarrassing as a suntan. It's not even recognised as such by a majority of the world's population. But it's important to understand that the octopus is attracted to white things. My friend Salvatore, who fishes for octopus, explained the whole thing to me. In the old days, he told me, they worked a two-man boat, one rowed and one fished. They used a box with a glass bottom, lo specchio, they called it, in Neapolitan, which means the mirror, though it is not a mirror, more of a looking-glass. With the glass, lo specchio, you can see the bottom. Before ever I see the octopus, he said, I see his house and his garden. The octopus always has a garden. If at this point you're reminded of a song by the Beatles, do not be surprised. I am making my small contribution to the vast literature devoted to the analysis of the cosmic lyrics of Ringo Starr. The house of the octopus, his little hideaway beneath the waves, will always be a cave or a crevice in the rocks. In front of his house will be an area of the seabed that the octopus sweeps clean and fills with ornaments that attract his attention. This is what Salvatore calls Il Giardino del Polipo, the octopus's garden. All of the ornaments will be white, especially white stones, which perhaps explains why my friend from San Fruttuoso was attracted to my palely gleaming feet. 
how they catch the octopus is interesting too. The fisherman dangles a white-painted hook, more like a small grappling iron, in the octopus's garden. The octopus thinks it's a fish, or a garden ornament, and reaches out to embrace it. Although well provided in the tentacle department, the octopus is remarkably short on discernment. As soon as he grabs the hook, the fisherman jerks it upwards very hard and very fast. If he does not strike quickly, the octopus gets a chance to brace himself and he will not be dislodged. The only way they can get him out now is to repeatedly batter his rock home with a heavy iron which they slide down the same line as the hook. Hopefully the iron will break the stones that he's hiding in and they can pull him out, otherwise they must cut the line and start again with a new one. A substantial loss when one considers the exchange value of an octopus vis-à-vis that of an iron hook and rope. But how does a pair of Irish feet rate as a garden ornament in the suburban octopus's garden? My guess is, on the lower end of the scale between a one-armed Venus and a garden gnome. I'd like to be under the sea In an octopus's garden in the shade He'd let us in, knows where we've been In his octopus's garden in the shade I won't have been the only one to take down my copy of Reading in the Dark by Seamus Dean on hearing the sad news of his recent passing. I'd first read it in 1996, a proof copy given to me in the bookshop where I worked in London, because I was from Derry, so I might like it. Back then, I was instantly absorbed by this compressed, atmospheric novel that conjured up a time and a place as successfully as a suite of music. The setting was the bogside area of Derry where I, like Seamus Dean, had grown up, and the time was the several decades preceding my life. Jennifer Johnston's Shadows on Our Skin had captured the same locale in the war-torn 70s. I remember being amazed as a child at seeing the Play for Today adaptation, reflecting our beleaguered streets back to us, our ordinary lives elevated to television drama. Reading in the Dark assembles its cast on the same stage as Johnston, but takes us back to the 40s and 50s, that uneasy interlude between the seismic political events of the early and late century in Ireland, the repercussions of the Civil War still rippling out like rings on the surface of a lake. Dean's novel is a story about stories, built from small discreet tales, a powerful mix of nationalist myth-making, political intrigue, local feuds and secrets. Some episodes can stand alone entirely, such as the comic masterpiece Maths Class, that appeared in The New Yorker, or the unforgettable scene Rats, where a battle against an infestation unearths an enormous king rat from its hole. There's a German pistol in the bottom drawer, blue-black and heavy, never to be mentioned. A ghostly presence at the turn of the stairs, and a mother with a touch of the other world about her. Accounts of supernatural happenings are handed down like narrative heirlooms. A terrifying exorcism, changeling children absent in a mirror, 
and the folklore of the hinterlands of Donegal, presided over by Green and Fort, where the warriors of the Fianna lie in a thousand years' sleep. Beneath it all is a mystery at the heart of the boy's own family, involving his disappeared uncle, Eddie. Did Eddie die in the distillery fire? Did he get away and start a new life in Chicago? There's a rumour that Eddie might have been an informer, a whisper that casts a shadow on the family name. Seamus Dean's prose is rich yet economical, densely woven with images, and his delight in language is everywhere evident. Here's a paragraph about meningitis, contracted by the boy's younger sister. I loved the names of the illnesses. Diphtheria, scarlet fever or scarlatina, rubella, polio, influenza. They made me think of Italian football players or racing drivers or opera singers. Each had its own smell, especially diphtheria. The disinfected sheets that hung over the bedroom doors billowed out their acrid fragrances in the draughts that chilled your ankles on the stairs. The mumps which came after the diphtheria wasn't frightening. It couldn't be. The word was funny and everybody's face was swollen and looked as if it had been in a terrific fight. But this was a new sickness, meningitis. It was a word you had to bite on to say it. It had a fright and a hiss in it. When I said it, I could feel Una's eyes widening all the time and getting lighter, as if helium were pumping into them from her brain. Back in my twenties, setting out on my own literary journey, it was a revelation to read stories set in my home's square mile, where memories fuse with their atmospheres and narratives. It's a feeling Dubliners must know better than most. One thinks, of course, of James Joyce's Portrait of the Artist, and Dean was a leading Joyce scholar. But unlike many first novelists, Seamus Dean had the benefit of literary maturity when he wrote Reading in the Dark. He was already a respected poet and critic, so he'd shaken off those coats of influence to find the story that only he could write. Our street overlooked that valley of terraces so brilliantly revivified by Dean, the lone Mur road that runs from the cathedral to the cemetery, from the baptism font to the six-foot plot. Some of the characters reminded me of my own familial cast, drawn from the tribe with its types and manners that you know intimately. My mother had grown up in our house and would raise her nine children there, her own mother living with us until she died in 1967. That year, the electronics factory that loomed above the stories of reading in the dark would shut down, consigning hundreds of men to unemployment. Dean's novel ends there, with the advent of the 1970s. The opening lines of his poem, Derry, could serve as epigraph for the times to come. The unemployment in our bones, erupting on our hands in stones. Reading in the Dark was to be Seamus Dean's only published novel. I like the reticence of that. It's a perfect jewel in his considerable legacy.
I grew up as an only child, living with my mother and grandmother in a house near the Phoenix Park. Because I had no brothers and sisters, I argued that at least I should be allowed a pet for company. My persistence paid off because when I was seven, I was given a beautiful ginger kitten from the cats and dogs home. Thinking the kitten was female, I called her Tara. And by the time I discovered she was in fact male, the name had stuck. Tara was a strikingly beautiful orange tabby with deep amber eyes and the sweetest of natures. We became inseparable and I treated him like a baby, pushing him around the neighbourhood in my doll's pram. He really seemed to enjoy this and often startled people by peeping his head out from inside the pram hood. From the age of eight, I went to school in St Stephen's Green. Every day, I made the trip to town on the number 10 bus. On my way to school one day, something caught my eye in Dawson Street. A large banner outside the mansion house advertising a cat show to be held the following Saturday. I immediately thought of Tara. By then, he had grown into what I thought was the most handsome cat in the world and would surely win a prize. The problem was that I couldn't rely on the ladies at home to see things the way I did. However, as the week went on, I became determined that we were going to the show and a plan began to take shape. We would travel to town on the number 10 bus I was so familiar with. I had no basket to carry him in, but I was confident that Tara would sit quietly and not jump out of my arms on the journey. I trusted him to be his usual laid-back self. I had faith. When Saturday came, I put on my coat, picked Tara up in my arms and slipped out of the house. I carried him down Blackhorse Avenue, turning right onto the North Circular Road to the bus stop. As we walked, he looked around him, but was relaxed. So far, so good. The bus arrived and I took a seat, placing Tara on my knee, holding him close and stroking his head to soothe him. He wriggled a little when the bus began to move, but then settled down as I spoke softly to him, explaining where we were going. People on the bus smiled at us and we smiled back. Then the bus conductor came to collect the fare. One to the mansion house, please, I offered, hoping that he wasn't going to charge for the cat. He didn't. Instead, he asked, so where are you two off to? We're going to a cat show, I said proudly. Arriving at Dawson Street, we headed for the mansion house, went up the stone steps and in. To my eight-year-old eyes, the bright and noisy hall in which the event was being held was vast. As I stood there holding my cat and feeling a little overwhelmed, two female organisers came over. They greeted me kindly and then one asked me where my mother was. She's at home, I replied. We came on the bus. We're here to enter the cat show. They exchanged glances and then one of them said enthusiastically, Well then, we had better find you a spot. Tara was placed in a large cage with a card with his name on the outside. I beamed with pride as I stood in front of the cage and chatted to people who came along to admire him. Then I went around the hall to check out the competition. There were rows and rows of cages with a huge assortment of cats, some with unusual colours and pointy angular faces others with luxuriant fluffy coats, and many with very long names. Some already had winner's rosettes pinned to their cages, but I couldn't see any as beautiful as my cat. Eventually, when I felt we had both had enough, we said our goodbyes and headed for the bus. As we snuggled into each other on the way home, 
my mind turned to the issue of how I was going to explain to my mother and grandmother where we had been. Believing honesty to be the best policy, I told the truth. They took it remarkably well, and I didn't get into any trouble. I now know that my mother was very amused by our escapade. I remember her laughing years later as she reminded me of the time I sneaked off with the Moggy to the pedigree cat show. You see, I've since learned that the event that we had gate-crashed was the governing council of the Cat Fancy of Ireland's annual cat show, an event reserved for purebred cats. There wasn't even a category for mixed breeds or domestic pets, as there often is today. So when I look back now, I do so with immense gratitude towards those women on the committee who colluded in our adventure, bent the rules and allowed that little girl and her beloved cat to take part in the magic. And without realising it, helped to create one of my most precious childhood memories. Well, little lady, let me elucidate here. Everybody wants to be a cat Goes against the only cat Tell me everybody's picking up on that feline beat Cause everything else is obsolete A square with a horn makes you wish you weren't born Every time he plays But with a square in the act You can set music back to Entering Gaza was a surreal experience I moved from a bright, airy, terminal-style building through a labyrinth of narrow grey corridors to a turnstile facing a dark, narrow metal door. I stepped through it into no man's land. The door closed with a clunk behind me, and I realised that it had no handle on this side. There was no way back. A walk of about a kilometre down a wire-covered pathway brought me to the modest hut of the local immigration service. I had entered a different world in just 15 minutes. It was June 2010 and I was visiting the Gaza Strip on behalf of Trokhara, just one year after the first Israeli assault on the territory, entitled Operation Cast Lead. I was there to assess the impact of the bombing and the economic blockade imposed by the Israeli government on the enclave of two million people crammed into a space less than half the area of County Louth. My hotel in Gaza City was a classic example of decayed grandeur. The location by a harbour was picturesque. In better times, it would have been an idyllic holiday location. I was in for some surprises. Walking around the nearby streets, I was surprised to see small, well-stocked supermarkets and the usual services, hairdressers, dry cleaners and coffee shops. I was even more surprised later that evening when going for dinner in the hotel, I found myself among a throng of young people in evening suits and ball gowns crowding into their graduation ball. Next day I set off with my Gazan hosts to tour the Strip. Our first meeting was with the UN Relief and Works Agency. My first impressions of a thriving economy were soon dispelled. I learned that while 30% of the population, representing about 600,000 people, were able to survive on their own resources, which explained the shops and services, the remaining 1.4 million people were dependent, either partially or fully, on humanitarian relief. I asked were people dying as a result of the economic blockade. No, they replied, but people aren't living either. Since the bombing the previous year, unemployment had soared to over 
The only thriving business in Gaza was the recycling of the rubble from the bombing into building materials. As for the new graduates in my hotel, I was told that they would leave at the first opportunity, most likely never to return. There was nothing for them in Gaza. Travelling through the outskirts of the city, we encountered many families occupying the shattered remains of their houses. Canvas awnings had been put up to provide shade and shelter, and they had arranged the remaining furniture and possessions around the shell of their house to provide some semblance of a home. There was no immediate prospect of rebuilding until the recycling efforts produced the necessary materials. We reached a fishing community where we met with about 20 fishermen sitting around their beached boats, smoking and chatting, some repairing nets. While it was a relaxed and friendly scene, it belied the life of poverty and hardship which this fishing community endured. The Israeli authorities had limited the distance from shore in which the fishermen could fish to just 5.5 kilometres. They pointed to the gunboat, just visible on the horizon, that enforced the law. This narrow strip of water had been overfished to the extent that it could no longer sustain their livelihoods. Some relief from the blockade was being achieved by the hundreds of tunnels that had been dug under the border from Egypt, emerging near the city of Rafa. It was through these tunnels that much of the produce I'd seen in the shops in Gaza City came. I visited one. It descended like a well for about 15 metres and then set off towards Egypt. All manner of goods were imported by this route, including motorcycles, generators, fuel, fridges and other household goods and even medicines. Many items had to be disassembled to facilitate their movement. It was a slow and arduous process. It appeared the Israeli authorities were happy to allow this smuggling to continue. It allowed in just enough to mitigate the effects of the blockade, thus lessening the frustration and anger being felt by the Gazan people at their isolation. Our final visit of the day was to a retired engineer, Mohammed Badwan, living on a small farm. Here I witnessed a total contrast to the misery and hopelessness I had encountered all day. Our host had done his studies in England and had worked on the design and construction of Spaghetti Junction, just outside Birmingham, before returning home. He was a widower, living alone, and he had decided to turn his small holding into a paradise, a word derived from Persian meaning walled garden. Indeed, he had succeeded in his ambition. This was a true oasis in the dry landscape of the Gaza Strip. Mohammed had built an irrigation system that watered plots of vegetables, an orchard, flower beds and date palms. He had an apiary that produced honey and goats for their milk. He had constructed pergolas over the pathways, supporting vines and providing shade. The sounds were of the trickling of water, the buzzing of bees, the bleating of goats and birdsong. Here truly was a land of milk and honey. As we returned to the fine two-storey farmhouse, our host pointed to its pockmarked back wall. He then indicated the border wall with Israel, about 500 metres away. He explained that when the guards on the wall got bored, they would fire at his house for target practice. It used to make him angry, he said, but not anymore. He endured it, knowing that this piece of paradise was enough to assure him that better times will come. Let us hope that the fragile ceasefire now established may herald the beginning of those long-awaited better times.
30 years ago, I walked out of my rooms in Trinity College, Dublin, to be confronted by a shocking sight. It was the visual equivalent of an emergency alarm's piercing shrill. The first petals had fallen from the cherry blossom trees outside of House 13, Botany Bay Square. In the days when university degrees largely depended on exams, it was said you needed to be studying by the time the cherry blossoms were out, but that you'd really better know your stuff by the time those first petals fell. I can still vividly remember looking down at the pink, silky petals pasted into the asphalt by overnight rain and realising that my finals were just three weeks away and, perhaps more significantly, my year of living in Trinity College was about to come to an end. Botany Bay, originally named after the location of the college's botanical garden, then had tennis courts overlooked by student rooms on three sides and on the fourth, a very conveniently located buttery bar. Beyond was the neoclassical architecture of the long room which housed the Book of Kells, and then the exam hall, dining hall, and the Campanile bell tower in Front Square. There was the almost windowless brutalism of the Berkeley Library, where I studied history. There was Dean and Woodward's exquisite museum building, where I studied geography. The Babylonian garden-like tiers of the arts block, where I mostly just studied life the pleasures of a hidden rose garden and the pavilion bar with its expansive cricket pitch to sit on during an early summer's evening. That was my world for eight months. In many ways, it was the idyllic student life. One day, as I sat on a window ledge studying theories of urban development, a tourist even stopped to take a photograph of me. I shared rooms with fellow geography student Johnny Gilmore, or Gilly, as I knew him, and still do. We were already friends before moving in, but sharing a kitchenette and sitting room in Botany Bay forged a bond that endures to this day. Gilly was irreverent, generous and honest. We talked late into the night, the way students talk late into the night. He'd explain a philosophical equation about love. I'd sound him out on the ethical issues facing the Chancellor of Germany after World War I. We shared several all-nighters writing geography dissertations to the soundtrack of Edith Piaf, Pink Floyd and the House Martins, while the hearth of the gas fire filled with the stubs of roll-up cigarettes. More than anything else, I remember an imaginary graph we drew on a wall in our rooms, charting the relationship between intelligence and happiness. The year wouldn't have been the same without him. Then there were others who lived in rooms, we were a community in and of ourselves. At night, the campus became our almost exclusive preserve. We'd walk the grounds, the sounds of footsteps on cobblestones, mixing with the sounds of the city that felt far more distant than they actually were. Outside the college walls were my bookshops, books upstairs, Hodges Figgis and the newly opened Waterstones. My cafes were Kilkenny Design, 
the Coffee Inn, Bewley's on Westmoreland Street. My local pubs were the Stag's Head and Kyo's. After nights out, we'd return to Front Gate, the large wooden gate facing Dame Street. We'd rap with the brass knocker, its ring worn thin by generations of students, and summon night porters from their lair. When the door opened, we'd hold up our room keys and jangle them, signalling our right to pass. I was fortunate enough to be part of one of the college's longest-running traditions, one almost as old as Trinity itself. It was the evening meal known as Commons. The ritual started at five past six, when the campanile bell tolled forty times, which was long enough for someone to walk from the far side of the campus to the dining hall in Front Square. Sitting at long wooden tables under the gaze of Lord Kilwarden, killed during Robert Emmett's rebellion in 1803, and Frederick Lewis, the Prince of Wales and father to King George III of England, were Trinity's fellows, professors who'd made outstanding contributions to the college, and the scholars, the college's finest students. I was neither, but was there because I'd been awarded the Jean Montgomery Bursary for Commons that had been set up in memory of the college's former Lady Superintendent of the Kitchen. Commons began with a Latin grace, Oculi omnium intersperant domini, the eyes of all hope in thee, O Lord, and ended with an after grace, written in 1627, that thanked Queen Elizabeth I for founding the college in 1592. Despite my atheistic, democratic and republican ideals, I too thanked her. In just a couple of weeks after those first petals had fallen, the cherry blossom trees had been laid bare. And then, the day after my final exam, I packed up my belongings, left House 13 Botany Bay and walked out of Trinity's Lincoln Gate. And as I did so, I took a deep breath. I figured the world I was returning to hadn't changed much in the last eight months. But I knew that I certainly had. Arriving at Los Angeles Cleared for visual approach in heavy traffic We queue mannerly and casual The pink mountains everywhere The pink confidence of LAATC The pink when you turn to face me The pink even in your auburn Irish hair As you grasp my hand The way everyone who loves to voyage grasps a lover's hand upon seat-back instructions. It has been too long since our last travelling. It has been an age since we glimpsed below us the gigantic runways out of a neutral sky. A gigantic country and a gigantic ocean crossed in less than a day. 
a leaving behind of rain and history and all the stuff that seems to stick like muck to your boots. We are lucky to escape one mind and float into another through this sunlit western haze. The first flaps rumble open as downtown skyscrapers rise untidily in their parched corridor. An orchestra of trays clipped away as suddenly as a flight of oyster catchers on a Kerry beach. Gear down and flaps at twenty. We begin to see the choke of highway traffic at two o'clock through frames of window beige. Such lengthy snarls south of the city. Gridlock that never seems to chew its way into the heart of what's creative and warm in that cast of movie nuts beneath our extended wing. The cabin crew laugh. Even the captain seems in good form as he offers a technical farewell, extending his special love to those who fly expensively and often, but kind too to the common people in our cabin. Speed falls to 142 and we float to 400 and seem to be displacing ochre beach sand and urban grime from this L.A. runway. We halt at Echo 10 Delta while a British Airways jumbo eases into its homeward flight, its backdraft thrilling to feel, its British island home as far away as our own. But what a sight I am with broken pretzels and squirts of olive oil on shirt and trousers. I can't wait to get to that downtown hotel with its high-powered brass shower, not to speak of all the power in great distances, all the power in coming down. On this morning's programme, we heard The Hunting of the Octopus by William Wall. Reading in the Dark a tribute to Seamus Dean by Colette Bryce. The Cat Show by Susan Weir. A Land of Milk and Honey by Justin Kilcullen. Living in Trinity by Tim Carey. And Arriving at Los Angeles, a poem by Thomas McCarthy. This morning's music began with Octopus's Garden by The Beatles. Then we heard Nocturne Number no. 1 in E-flat by John Field, played by John O'Connor. After that, everybody wants to be a cat from the soundtrack to the Aristocats. Then we heard Les Enfants de Palestine by Adele Salame. And finally, Happy Hour by the House Martins. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Carolyn Dempsey. The producer is Sarah Binchy. RTE Radio 1 You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.